Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In our fourth year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host Mark Anthony Rossi and as I always say, getting interviews together, it, it can always be a challenge, particularly with people's uh, schedules, although today uh, it has less to do with that and more to do with technical issues, but thank the God uh, we were able to resolve them. Uh, I'm really fortunate to have uh, our, our next guest here, writer Thomas uh, Reed uh, Wilmahamein. Um, he is a former academic, a, a software entrepreneur, and an intelligence officer. As a writer, he does a lot of flash fiction. We're happy to have him at Aerial Chart. His, some of his other credits are Grand Falloon over in Canada, Holbord, um, Burning Word Literary Journal, and The Medley. Um, he has also been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. So, uh, Thomas, thank you very much for agreeing to come on to the show today. Well, thanks, Mark. You might as well call me Tom. You got it. I, I appreciate that. Um, and we'll, we'll mention later on in, in the interview, if you like, uh, he is also author of, of a book, uh, Working on the Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Life Inside the NASA Security Agency, which might be a different part of the interview than the general writing that we're talking about here. So um, I don't know, maybe he might want to save that for last. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, we were talking briefly before we started recording officially here that... Um, some writers, and I think I think Tom might be one of them, uh, fall into writer oftentimes later in their life. Uh, sometimes they have events that happen that cause them to do it. I've talked to a number of people that uh, once they have concluded their careers and their children have finally moved out of the house, it's when they really felt they had the time or the energy to do that. You know, and others like myself, I've been I've been writing my literally my entire life. So it, it really uh, falls on people in, in different ways and. And in, and in different manners. Uh, I, I like your, your fiction a lot. I, I really think that it's um, it's not pretentious like sometimes when people start, which is really can be a, a, annoying at times because you can often tell when someone started and you're reading it going, okay, you don't really have to add every single word that you learned in college in, inside this, <laughs> this, this thousand word uh, uh, piece here, please. So uh, thankfully you, you have not done that and, and that makes it to be uh, unique because it has your own sort of a tonal, uh, you know, personality. Oh, thanks. Well, I had an advantage there. Mostly I was doing equations, so it didn't get in the way. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I was thinking about this interview, Mark, and, and this is uh, something I'm not used to doing. Um, and I thought, well, how did I end up waiting to talk to you doing an interview about my writing? Because... How did I, first, how did I end up doing some writing? I mean, it's it's another example, I think, in the story of my life of just being in a strange place that I didn't expect to end up. I mean, I started out, um, when I went to college, I, I was an electrical engineer. 
And uh, I did that at Princeton, and then I went to MIT and got a master's in it, a PhD in it, became a statistician. And I was doing a lot of writing because, you know, a professor is, is into the publisher parish thing, but uh, the writing was full of equations and graphs and not that many words. Um, but when I was in college, I didn't know quite whether I really wanted to be an engineer. It just seemed like a safe thing to be. But I went to Princeton, and at Princeton, I, I sort of wobbled. I thought, well, I, I either want to be an English major or an engineer. And it was supposed to be an aero engineer, but because I sort of grew up imagining airplanes was fun. But I ended up as an electrical engineer. But there was a, a strange little aberration moment when I was a sophomore. I took a course on modern American poetry. And um, they had a contest, a poetry contest. And I was amazed to see I got honorable mention in something called the Bain Swigget Poetry Prize. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, do they know I'm an electrical engineer and probably shouldn't be given an award? <laughs> <laughs> and then when we were graduating, I, I was really shocked. We went away. We came back for the ceremony, and there was a, a letter for me in the dorm that said I got into Phi Beta Kappa. And I said, you know, how did that happen? That's like words. <laughs> So I never did uh, see if it was a mistake. I just took it. But those two things planted a seed in me that maybe there was another side that someday would pop out. And uh, the someday eventually came. Uh, and after 50 years of being a professor and overlapping with that 40 years of doing business or doing public service, um, all of a sudden I did have some time to, uh, to do something else. And then nature provided a great boost because nature said, you're too old to do math, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there is, there is a, a myth that's not entirely a myth that as you get older, it's harder to do math. Um, and so back in 2017 is when I really started to do, try to be serious about writing. And there's a, a journal that no one else has ever heard of called the Journal of Humanistic Mathematics. And uh, I hadn't known too much about it, but a, a friend of mine from the intelligence community pointed it out to me. And, and they actually published poetry and fiction and, uh, and sort of essays. And I wrote an essay called A Life of Equations Shifting to a Life of Words. And that writing that sort of legitimized this redefinition of myself to myself. I mean, because, you know, you, you work hard to be a good technical person. And then it's like a ball player. They don't want to take the uniform off. Right. Hmm. But, you know, you're a step slower. Uh, you're striking out more. <laughs> um, and that you've got an itch to do something else. So I ended up starting to write and the latest, uh, reinforcement of that, thank you very much, is that you just accepted two pieces in Aerial Chart, which was doubly amazing um, because you accepted two pieces. And amazing in other word, ways, too, because your journal is different. Um, you actually have a kind of empathy for the writer 
you, I don't get a feeling dealing with aerial chart that I'm just part of um, some big production apparatus. Yeah, we don't like and to which, we don't like to do that. Yeah, well, you don't, and you're pretty uh, pretty adamant about it in your, your the preface you have on your website, and I think that's that's really admirable because usually, you know, um, there's there's sort of a production line. It's more like engineering than it ought to be, I think. And, yeah, and, and I agree with you. I, I, <laughs> when I put this thing together five years ago. I said that I wanted to not only be different than other literary journals, but I wanted to actually go back to being literary and actually being an editor, which means that you have to make contact with the writer and you should communicate with them and you should be doing something to head to help them. If it's just a stupid title, then you become like everybody else. And if you think, if you look at the average guidelines for many of these publications, they seem to be more technical things than they are literary. Yeah, uh, I, I wanted on Times Roman on the number 16 and don't give me a PDF and uh, shoot mm -hmm. it over here before this date. And it just seems to be all the things about what makes their life easier, but nothing about what could be possibly useful to the journal that maybe increases a person's acceptance. So I might have went a little overboard on the guidelines, but at least no one can say that I'm vague. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're definitely crisp and simple which is appreciated. I don't know how many times I've seen an outlet and I say, well, I think it'd be interesting to get in that group. They're doing some, putting out some interesting work. So I'll try to send something their way. And then it's like a half an hour of operation to try to get something poised to send in the right format and in the right time, as you say. And then I'll discover a little sub clause someplace that says, no, I really can't do this at all. Um, and so it's it was like a, t a total time sink, and you get grouchy after a while. Yeah, I but, don't, I never liked that. That's why I wanted to make sure that we really <laughs> uh, we really uh, set ourselves apart. I also wanted to make sure that if we had rejections, that we were going to give myself and the other editors who I recruited on for this, we were going to give people some kind of a brief explanation, maybe even a, a possible direction. We wasn't going to send a soulless form letter out and then claim that we're editors. Uh, to me, it's disgusting and cowardly. If you're going to be an editor, then be an editor. Don't don't send some, some junk along like it's some kind of political thing because then there really isn't any connection. Who can connect to something after they worked on something for a month and, and a couple of weeks later they get something that says, yeah, we're too full or it doesn't mean this work is bad, but we can't use it. And it's, just, it's just nonsense boilerplate. Be honest, be real, be human. Yeah, I, I think that's wonderful, but you made one serious mistake in what you just said. It, you don't get the, the soulless letter a couple of weeks later. You get it a year later. So Yeah, I, I know. Um, I'm just kind of like, you know, <laughs> I, I probably reduced it a little bit. Yeah, usually it's a couple of months and sometimes even longer than that. But nevertheless, it's just, yeah. to me, it's just not warranted and I, I don't I don't really uh, appreciate it uh, at all. So I made sure that we didn't do that. Even the editors that I recruit, they're like, Mark, that's a lot of work. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not a work for you to tell somebody in a sentence or two that this piece isn't working for us and this is the reason why. Line number seven sucks. Or, or, or maybe this thing is adrift from the title that you put onto it. Or, or maybe it simply needs a, a, another draft. But you should be able to say something that they could use. It doesn't, you don't have to be mean, but you've you got to be honest. Uh, and I, I think that's a wonderful idea. I've never experienced it. Luckily, so far, I'm two for two with you. So I, I don't know what your rejection essays look like, 
But, um, you know, that just doesn't happen. I, that's special. And having spent 50 years as a professor in the publisher parish world, I've had a lot of the other the other end. I mean, the editors, every time you send in a draft technical paper, you get an editor, maybe an associate editor and several anonymous referees. And you get, um, instead of the cold shoulder, you get hot fire. <laughs> oh, and that's just, that system is set up. I don't know if it works this way in the literary world, but that system is set up. So those anonymous referees often start with the idea that you're a competition and there's, they got to suppress you. And, and, um, uh, I've seen so many illogical, uh, technical referees. And, and you're powerless. I mean, you get you get a lot of information, but you, none of it's a lot of it's not credible or it's just mean. And um, and so I don't know. There, there's there's trouble either way. Either you get the cold shoulder or you get a lot of abuse. But, uh, you know, that's I guess you keep being brave and keep sending things out. And actually, in the end, I think I had over 120 published technical publications, which means I probably had three times that many moments of pain. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can, I can believe that. Uh, mostly, but, mostly in the literary world, they're not really approaching uh, somebody who submits something as a competitor. The biggest problem in the literary world is too many editors want you to sound like the last three people who they, uh, who they published. Or, or they'll say something about, refer back to a couple of our issues, you can get a feel of what we're doing. Well, if there's a feel of what you're doing, why don't you put that in the guideline? We're into uh, red cardinals and blue jays. You know, <laughs> don't don't put this feel stuff in it because it's just nonsense. It's vague, and it just gives you room to reject people left and right. Well, it didn't seem like it fit. Well, really, why? Because I don't I don't get what you're saying. So th that's a that's a real problem over there. Is that they they want more conformity than they want creativity. And and to me, that should be a, against being a, a literary person. You're supposed to be taking a chance you're supposed to be doing something different you're supposed to be able to access your own voice you're not supposed to sound like suburban guy four states away yeah yeah and i think if more editors thought of themselves less as filters and more as helpers the the whole feel of the thing would be much much more simpatico well we're supposed to be adjudicators it's not that difficult to do read something quickly and make a quick judgment do I think this is going to work well with us or not? Since I abandoned the themes a million years ago, we have no theme at all. I don't even care what month it is. It could be December. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm not interested in Christmas, so I'm not. I'm looking for a Christmas poem. So you could send me something that's happening to it's somebody being tortured in Tibet. If it's a good piece of literary work, I'm going to take it. So it doesn't really matter. So therefore, I can actually look at something, and so can the editors, and say, yeah, this is this is written well enough. I, I think it has some educational or some uh, some educational value, or maybe some entertainment value, or maybe it just has that literary art feeling that we want to be able to see someone put together a wonderful set of words that that, that kind of elevates us a bit, mm -hmm. and then and then we'll accept that. So we we reject. I mean, but we reject probably maybe like forty percent of what we get in. So I still accept a, a, a majority of what we receive. And when we do reject, we give guidance. And sometimes people come back and have rewritten or reviewed something in a way that allows us to accept that even. So if people take it to heart, it has a real benefit for them. But it's the way it's really supposed to work. And if folks are going to continue to complain, 
meaning editors, that uh, they're too swamped and they get too much stuff and they call everything a slush pile. They, all they're really doing is discrediting not only themselves but the, the people that are out there. They really shouldn't be in this if this is how they're going to handle things. And it gets handled like that way too often. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I I sat down thinking about this interview and I totaled up uh, my experience with trying to write since 2017. And uh, being an engineering guy, I've got a spreadsheet <laughs> uh, where I, I keep track of what I send out. And I I have come to describe my literary life as industrial scale failure. Um, maybe it's a carryover from publisher parish engineering, but in in 2020, I I sent out 1,113 pieces. Some of them more than once, obviously. Um, and and 89% were rejected, and none of them none of them had any hint of the kind that you're you're offering to people who submit to Aerial Chart. And the other 11%, I think, are just lost in the ether. Sometimes you never even hear back. But then I said, well, that's amazing. If I send out 1,113 pieces and and uh, only got a couple of accepted, I must be a lousy writer, or I'm sending too many pieces to the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong places. So the next year, I only send out 848. I got 86% rejected, and I'm sure the rest are just waiting for their turn at the gallows. <laughs> and so this year, so far, I've sent 222. I didn't realize until I totaled this up that I seem to be slowing down. And 50% so far have been rejected. None of them that were rejected um, had any suggestions. Two of them said, well, you know, you, you kind of have a good voice. Try, try again someday. So there's a, a little spark of uh, encouragement there. But overall in that time, I've managed to get 21 poems and 22 pieces of flash fiction out. And when I compare that to people in my writing groups, that's actually supposed to be a pretty good batting average. <laughs> yeah, uh, anything that's 20% or you know, a little bit below that, you know, it means that you're, you're really making some significant ground. But as you can see, it's a big numbers game, something you, you know from a, from a past life. And it, it really shouldn't be that way because the, the truth of the matter is, is you don't really know what real substance they're inside that 89 cent re rejection rate. You don't even know if the person actually even read the piece. This is what bothers me the most because oh, I'm I used, trying not to think of that. Yeah, I used to work inside <laughs> the academic world in literary before I decided to establish my own. And I had I had too many editors telling me, you know, um, hey, the head editor wants you to, to publish to two of their friends and three of their cousins' uh, uncles. And then oh. uh, don't forget that we have a prize uh, person that's coming up that's being nominated. So we got to be able to send that in once you've gone through the list of everybody that they wanted for that month, you had maybe like five or six openings. So when a lot of these form letters say, you know, we just didn't have enough room for you, that's probably the only piece of truth they're saying in that entire letter. <laughs> because they really don't. They're too busy with the cronyism and not enough with the creativity. Oh, well, good. This is getting the poison out of my heart. <laughs> I, I tell I tell writers this all the time, Tom, and I, I don't tell them because it's a good way to give them some false hope or because, you know, I like to slap people on the back and, you know, have fun with it. The truth of the matter is you honestly do not know what's occurred because they haven't told you anything that was useful. 
And that's the problem. So you don't really know it's a rejection. And I'm sorry to say, because I've seen this happen already behind the scenes, you don't even know if they even got a chance to read it. For all you know, there's a percentage where they cut it off for that month and they send them all letters out on the email and have a good day. And yeah. I'm going to go to Starbucks now. And that's it. I don't, so, don't want to hear this. <laughs> but that's a, unfortunately, that's the truth of what happens a lot. So I yeah. try to remind people who, who um, get down the dumps. I'm like, listen, you don't have any right to get down the dumps. You don't honestly know if you've been read or not. So if you haven't been read, then how the hell can you consider yourself rejected? <laughs> well, that I could I could pretend from now on that everything that comes back negative is because they didn't bother reading it. Well, you you <laughs> you can, but you, you won't be too far from the truth. <laughs> well, you know, as much as I have my gripes about the academic system. The good part of it is that um, you're expected, the, the expectation is they're going to help you make it better and you, you'll be sending in a revised version. So, you know, that's, that's more leaning in the positive direction. They say, well, you know, this is, this is a little weak. You need more support for that. Uh, fix this equation. Uh, tell us why we care about this particular conclusion. And so you've got pointers to make it better. And, uh, you know, that's just, uh, it's much more soulless in the world that's supposed to be built around soul, isn't it? Right. And it's really, it's really bothersome. I'll tell you two quick little stories here. One was uh, part of my recruitment to have editors because, you know, they're, they're like everybody else. They say a year or two and they move on to something else. It's, you know, it's a bit of work and, you're not exactly getting paid for it. It's a volunteer thing. but And I remind them, listen, part of your job is you need to be able to respond to somebody you reject. Now, if you reject six poems, I'm not asking you to, to give them six explanations. But pick something out of that group and say, hey, this is what the problem was and blah, blah, blah. I've had some people turn me down, Mark. That's too much work. And I'm like, aren't you the person that has told me how crappy it is out there? I'm offering you a way to fix something that, that, that should be fixed and should be done on a regular basis. And now you don't even want to do that. So you're you're not only receiving this issue, but you're becoming the issue too by not wanting to do that. Yeah. So you can't stay here. And then I've had a couple of writers that were so shocked with our response. One one lady wrote me back. She goes, uh, uh, "The hell with you. I don't want to correct this. I think it's fine." I go, <laughs> I, I I and I told her. I I said, "Listen, you're not going to get a lot of this contact, okay?" You have a better chance to talk into Jesus, okay, than you're going to be able to talk to one of these editors. And now they're telling you, here's a couple of reasons why we, we didn't want to take this piece. But if, if you can revisit this, you have a, you ever get a chance to get in this published at this publication. And you're still telling me to go to a hot place. And it wasn't Miami that she was telling me, okay? So there you go. Sometimes even in the face of what you're actually doing, because I'm not just preaching it. I'm actually practicing that. You got some folks that are resistant, and it's they're just resistance, in my opinion, to, to common sense because they hurt themselves by that. Well, yeah, I, I, you're right intellectually, but I think for a lot of writers, it's so personal um, that it's hard it's hard to be rational when you get rejected. You know, in a way, it's almost less cruel to get one of these anonymous form letters because you can write it off as not personal. Um, I'm part of a I'm part of a private editor group that that meets and I don't tell you who they are because none of them want to be named. <laughs> but they often tell me as a joke, yeah, Mark. That's part of the reason why we do that is because we just don't want to hear all that flack. 
I go, you're an editor. It's just like a parent. You can't say I had a, I had two sons, but I don't want them ever complaining, breaking windows or acting dumb now and then. I just want them to be perfect all the time. Well, then don't be a father then, okay? It's the same thing with the editor. Don't be an editor if you don't want to have somebody bark at you now and then. That's going to happen. But what you're saying, as long as it's honest and it's grammatically correct, it, it, it should be told to them. Listen, line seven sucks it's completely out of the ordinary it ruins the entire poem how about you look at that it's it's not like you're telling them you know that they're, they're stinky writers you're certainly not telling them to go to heck you're simply saying as an editor i'm looking at this line it doesn't make any sense it's ruining everything else that looks good well sure and in fact you know i'm in two writing groups and we do that to each other every week and it's really really useful and of course, at this point, we know each other, so we're kind of used to the abuse, and it evens out. I get it, I give it, but it's it's formed a friendship out of criticism, and that's really a nice thing to happen. I, I agree, but I I happen to think even a lot of the things that we offer to the writers is not necessarily criticism. I am a reader when I'm doing this. I'm not a writer when I'm doing this. So as a reader, I'm like, I can't get this. It's not working well. Look at that and go fix it. So this way, the next reader can now get everything you're trying to do. So in, in sure. many in many ways, it's, it's just more like, you know, kind of like quality assurance. That's all. Right. Yeah. But again, in, in most of our writing lives, if we don't get it locally through a, a writing group that we're in, and we're not sending stuff to you where we would get some feedback, then and we're just working in the dark all the time. And and so these local writing groups, I think, are it's been critical to me. And, you know, they're not above telling me that somebody just told me this week when I said these things got in into aerial chart. They said, well, you've come a long way, Tom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's it's it's useful to hear that. Useful to hear. It that. is because you you you're seeing something they're not going to see. I, I remember because I I've been fortunate to have some editors uh, give me feedback and, and, and be helpful as, as a writer, not just as somebody that's the editor. I remember one gentleman telling me, Mark, I, I like this fiction piece, but I I don't really think the ending is the proper ending. I think you should look at that again. And when I looked at it again, after that person said that, I'm like, you know, I think they're right, and I wound up rewriting it. Uh, they didn't wind up taking it, but it did wind up getting published a few months later somewhere else. So the mm -hmm. tip they gave me and my new ending might have just helped me to get it published somewhere else. So what they have to say was inside I didn't catch. I thought the ending was all right, but it, it turns out it wasn't. Mm. Yeah, well, that it's good that we can we can hear it and we can adapt. That's that's, that's professionalism. Well, I just think I just think so you don't get a lot of this 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 input. So when somebody gets the input, if anything else, they ought to be excited because the first thing it should tell them is, oh my God, somebody actually read this other than me and my uncle Joe. Somebody actually yeah. read it. So right there, you're like, okay. And now they've read it to the point where they they find a few things that could be wrong. Let me go over there and investigate and see what I can do to improve this. Those things to me, uh, anyway, as a writer ought to be things that are, that are almost like celebrate. You ought to be able to celebrate yeah. that because that means Absolutely. that you're, you're, you're making a connection and, and you're doing something that in the end is, is going to be able to come out to be a, a good piece of art uh, versus, again, like, uh, you know, that, that letter that, that tells you the same thing. 
that everybody gets. I mean, how the hell did somebody get the same letter at 300 people they rejected? That alone should tell people how fraudulent that is. Yeah, well, you know, you don't quite know whether anybody else got one because it just happens to you in the solitude of your own house. Well, right? you, you so. know if you gave them four poems and each one of them got rejected with the same friggin' form letter, <laughs> then you know they're all oh, getting well, it that way, yeah. That's true. But, yeah, you know, you could say, well, everybody's getting hosed, and so it's not personal. <laughs> it's not helpful either. No, it, it, it might not be personal, but it definitely is not helpful. And I, I happen to think if you're going to call yourself an editor or editor-in-chief like I do on this journal, um, part of your definition is you're supposed to be helpful. Yeah. Well, you know, it's um, – There'll be times, you know, more often than not, like nine, more than 90% of the time, you send something out and it dies a horrible death. And then we'll gather at, at dinner, my wife and my son who lives with us, and I might be complaining about that. And my son always looks at me and says, well, why don't you start the Schenectady Journal of Weird Poetry and be your own editor <laughs> and take, take your own stuff and, and skip the grief. And we just laugh about it. But he thinks that I don't really do poetry. Because he always says, well, if it doesn't rhyme, it's not really poetry. He just he's pretty good at pulling my chain. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's all kinds of poetry, and most of it doesn't doesn't rhyme. So, yeah, he's definitely, yeah. Uh, he's definitely messing around. I, well, I've yeah. only got a chance to read three of your pieces, the first one being uh, when you got published at Grand Falloon with myself, as full disclosure yes. here, and the Canadian magazine, which is wonderful. And then the two pieces that you sent to us, both which we accepted, one we published already for this month, and the other one we'll publish in August. I don't really, I, I, I could tell a tone and I could tell a, like, a, like a certain style, but I don't really detect a, a trend of what you're trying to do. Not that you're supposed to have one, but do you have a certain idea of what you want to keep writing, or are you just coming to each piece with something new each time? That's a really good question. Um... As when I spent years as an academic, I, I thought we had a social mission. And one of it is to do the fringy stuff. I mean, you don't do the stuff that's you don't walk the path that's well trod. You try to find new things. You don't repeat yourself. You look for the problems that nobody else is working on or they're afraid to work on. And so I take that idea ahead into my writing. I, I don't want to repeat myself. Maybe I'm just easily bored. So I don't want to have a style and I don't want to have a topic. And but I find, you know, I was thinking about, again, to prepare for this interview, where where do ideas for writing come from? And there's a formal way to do that. There are these things called prompts. And I somehow I just hate the idea of prompts. Um, I, there's enough. I like to hate things. I hate smartphones. I hate coffee. I hate animals. And I hate prompts. And there's enough interesting stuff in, in my various lives that there's always a stimulus that gives me an idea. And, and they don't repeat. Like the two you took, one of them uh, came from uh, my business life. Uh, until the end of this month, I'm working full time at a software company in the Boston area that three of us started 40 years ago. And so that whole startup, software, business, cutthroat world is itself a source. And that gave me ideas for the, the one you published this week. 
and the one you're going to publish next time. Um, um, no, I'm sorry, the other way around. The one you came this week was from the academic world. About It came from something that happened with my last PhD student a couple weeks ago. Um, and so that's a, that's a unique world, that academic world, and the world of Chinese PhD students and crump, grumpy faculty. And then the one that's coming out next week is from the company. Um, and so I've, I've got all these... Uh, I won't call them prompts because a prompt is something that another person tells you you should write about. Mm -hmm. But life is whispering in my ear, and sometimes I listen, and there's so much of that going on. Just being being retired um, is, is a source of uh, angst and therefore writing material. So there's there's seems like a never-ending stream of little things that happen every day that could turn into a poem or turn into a story. And the problem is to filter them out and say, okay, 16 interesting ideas occurred today. Which one is worth developing? And might somebody else might care to read because I don't want to just write for myself. I don't know, where do your ideas come from when you, you, you wake up one morning, you don't have a, a paper in your head or a poem or a story. By the time you go to bed, it is in your head. So what happens during that day? Well, that's funny. Um, like yourself, I'm 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 not a younger man, so I've had a a, a past life and, and a couple of past lives, uh, in, including the fact that I, I've got married and had children much later in my life than most people do. So when kids go to the supermarket, they're like, "Wow, your grandkids are handsome." I'm like, "That's my son." What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Uh, I I've grown not not to be offended anymore, but in the beginning, I'm like, "Oh my God, I I forgot about that," but um. So I, I realized that um, some of the work I did uh, for my past life, uh, I was an intelligence officer in the Air Force uh, in, in intelligence. And so I wrote a lot about uh, my travels in Europe and, you know, as much as I could, you know, get away with it, you know, and, and not violate any, any secrets. And I realized later on as I was writing that, you know, I got to start writing something that's more about my new life as, as a parent, you know, and, and what that means. So I, I wind up driving a lot of, from that as well. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I wind up having a, a dramatically different uh, set of things depending on what part of the life I'm, I'm writing about. So you could read about yeah. something I did where I was younger in Germany, you know, um, chasing after somebody in the military. And then you could read something about, you know, I'm not happy with the educational system, the way it's approached my son. So I had to intervene and do something about it, you know, and, and have fiction pieces like that that, uh, that are literally decades apart because – Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's really the only way you can derive things that, that mean mean something to you. And I, to me, I, I always tell writers, uh, if you want to uh, put together something like a bunch of notes together and literally concoct something, you can, or you can really shoot for what I do, the visceral things that you feel move you and you just want to be able to write about something like that and fictionalize it, but get that point out there because you know that uh, that's going to stand apart from what somebody else is going to write about. Yes, and, yes. And, and therefore, you get to be who you are because <laughs> in the end, it might not necessarily be about your uh, literary style as much as it might be just about the particular topic that you're, you're putting out there. Not everybody who's writing fiction is going to write about you know, being in the intelligence field during the Cold War and, and how, how you had to mm. go about things versus you know, something, mm -hmm. something now. So um, 
that really helped me out a lot, and it does give me a lot of, uh, I guess you say, material, and, and it continues to do mm-hmm. so. But I'm also a, a, an Italian kid from New Jersey, so I, you know, I got a lot of stuff I can always write about that, which I, which I have already as well. Uh, so <clears> it, <throat> it's, it's not, to me, it's not hard to find things to write about. It's just a question of, because it, it's my own uh, preference. Uh, they have to be written about because I feel that there's some relevance to them, not necessarily just to me, but to a possible reader. Otherwise, there's no point in, in writing it if it's just about, yeah, I remember that thing and that's cool. Or, you know, like that. You could write all day about the girl that broke your heart, but how can you translate that to the audience to where they could say, you know, dude, I remember the same girl broke my heart. I might she, <laughs> she might even have the same name. <laughs> then, then you know you got something. You know, otherwise it's just it's just another mean girl. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I didn't realize that you and I were both in the secret world, and but we've we've sort of handled that in different ways. You did the smart thing, and you sort of kept away from it largely in what you wrote. I went the other way foolishly, and I, I, I spent uh, about three years in the National Security Agency. And I, when I was sort of finishing up, and I was realizing that I was, I lost half a step. Uh, people there are extremely bright. The the pace is frenetic, and I knew I could contribute, but not at the same level I had before. I thought what I could do to help is to switch from equations to words and explain why somebody else should take my place there in the fight. Um, and so I decided to write a memoir, which you mentioned at the top of the interview, yeah. um, about my time there called Working on the Dark Side of the Moon. And uh, that was interesting because it may put me in front of the Supreme Court in the fall. Which doesn't usually happen to a writer. I hear but that. I, I actually put it on order, so I can't wait to read it. There's not a lot of NSA books out there. I remember reading The Wilderness of Mirrors about like I don't know, 25 years ago or something. But that's probably yeah. the only work I, I'm really even familiar with. So it's it was great to see another thing out there. Yeah, there there aren't a lot. Um, there there are a couple from the guys at the top who would who would write a sort of valedictory biography. And it would be pretty heavy on, you know, geopolitical strategy yeah, and that sort of like stuff. Yeah, like General Hayden and you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. right. But there's not much from the bottom, you know, from the the worker level gotcha. of what it's like to be there, what the people are like, and what it what it actually feels like to be in the secret world. Uh, we made it – maybe this is the same language you used in the Air Force, but we always talked about the, the basic distinction between being inside and being outside. And you behave differently inside. You think differently inside. You have a whole bunch of extra worries if you're inside. And so I wanted to open up the inside a little. And, of course, the NSA uh, wasn't used to anybody writing about them. Um, And so there was this sort of slow-motion crucifixion to try to get the book through pre-publication review. And in the end, we got it out. Uh, they did their best to stop me. That was an interesting <laughs> feeling of pressure. And fi- about 15% of the text is black. I left the redactions in as a kind of uh, um, poke in the eye to the people who took the words out because most of it was Mickey Mouse. shouldn't have been deleted. But after I did that, I wrote an essay in a, a blog called Lawfare, which is pretty important in the national security realm 
and it was a critique and suggestions about how to improve pre-publication review. So if you, as you know, but the audience may not, once you've been in the secret world, generally the assumption is you won't even want to write about it, but if you do write about it, it has to be cleared. And uh, it's tough to get things cleared. Uh, and, and they do it in a ham-handed way and they actually hurt themselves by suppressing some things that would be good for them. I, I agree. I, I, I agree. Yeah. I, that's why I, when I when I did it, I finished a book, which I'm actually actually uh, peddling it out there to get an agent for. Uh, I purposely made the entire book fiction and changed certain things. That's why I didn't have to worry about that review at all because it's not nonfiction. So there's nothing they, they, they could feel weird about. And that's pretty much how I got around it, not having to worry uh -huh. about it because not every detail out there was necessary for me to talk about anyway. Some of it's quite boring. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize yeah. that most classified things are quite boring. <laughs> it's not like a Hollywood thing. So you don't even <laughs> want to talk about it anyway, not because it's so secret, but because it's so boring. <laughs> well, I, I considered some of that boring stuff to be interesting to write about, just for the point you made. You know, to, This is what it's really like. So you know, you can write about burn bags. You can, you, you can write about triple locked doors and so forth. Anyway... My point about getting back to the Supreme Court is um, a couple of years later, the ACLU gathered together a bunch of people whose books had been beaten up in pre-publication review and, and had a lawsuit. And uh, they, they sued the director of NSA, director of CIA, uh, the secretary of defense and other people and said, you know, you, sh you, you shouldn't be acting like this. And it, that got rejected. The appeal got rejected. But um, the ACLU came in again, and there, it might get on the calendar of the Supreme Court in the fall. And there's an amicus brief from Yale Law School, which invited me and a couple other authors to uh, show our wounds. And so this stuff may may show up on the Supreme Court brief uh, or docket in the fall. So that that thing uh, that thing keeps sort of keeping my life interesting. That would be interesting. I would be. Uh, and I'm certainly gonna gonna root for you <laughs> because I, I believe as someone who was also on the inside that some of the philosophy of the inside about hey Mark, there are certain things that are so sensitive that they shouldn't be written and talked about. I agree that there are. But if you look at it mathematically, it's a tiny percentage of anything that anyone has done on a regular basis. And to, to, to try to stop them 100% of the time, it's just, it's just idiotic, and it hurts them more in, in many ways than, 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 than it helps anyone else. And not to mention that, uh, you know, if, after all the service you put in, I mean, you did three years, I did six years, you know, you, you, you feel it's a bit of a slap in the face. Well, I'm used to being slapped in the face, but I, I think... You know, when we were looking at the review process, I said, why don't you have your public affairs people in, in this, too? Because you guys can't recruit enough eggheads like me, enough geeks. They're all going to Amazon and Apple and uh, Google. And you're in, a, in an area where it's extremely expensive to live. If you're a young Ph.D. or some sort of hotshot and you've got a baby it's easier to, to take big bucks and go to California. And they need somebody to, to explain the mission and some of the satisfactions of that life. They didn't, those people 
the people who were looking at the book, they know their one job is to say no. They have no reason to say yes. And so, it, you know, for most writers, it's, a, it's an odd situation you're never going to encounter. You mostly encounter the indifference that you've been talking about before. But sometimes, you know, writing can have a positive, although possibly dangerous uh, tint to it. And, you know, this is, this is an example. You, you found a way to wiggle out. Although I'm telling you, man, if uh, the tentacles could look at that and say, yeah, you think you've made it fiction, but because it comes from the time when you were a sworn employee, we still have a right to check it out. Oh, they can give and, that. They can give that a shot, but uh, they're not gonna. They're gonna <laughs> like the way I handle things. So I'm not really. I'm not too worried. I, I know that the people who have encountered what you encountered have always done it in in a non-fictional memoir way, which unfortunately, and I'm not defending them, but it leaves you more open than than things. That oh, are fiction, sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the whoever listens to this is probably not at risk of getting in trouble with the DoD. <laughs> probably I not. I think. Uh, well, as, Maybe a, they'd want to as a as a funny as a funny rejoinder, okay? I, I I share this with you. You'll you'll get a good laugh, okay? Because it really happened. So I, I did six years in the Air Force, okay? So the first year I did was with spy planes, and I I found it incredibly boring. So I I, I applied to go uh, in the field. So they finally sent me over to Germany, and I I was there for three years, and and I I enjoyed it. And uh, I get called in my commander one day, and he goes, hey, uh, uh. At the time, I was a non-commissioned officer. It wasn't even a month after I got my sergeant rank, and they put me in charge of a communications center, so I got to do my first major fixed assignment. I still had field work to do, but I also had a fixed assignment as well. They're like, yeah, they want you to go to the National Security Agency. I'm like, sir, I'm not going anywhere. If I decide to stay on as a career, I'm going to be here. I'm not going anywhere. I go, second of all, I already know from all my friends who went there as supposedly some career stepladder thing. They're, they're walking around in civilian clothes. Their mail is being read. I mean, I, I'm in the Air Force. I, I can't even wear my uniform and where I'm working at. And, and why would I want to go there to Maryland when I'm in, in Europe? I could go to Luxembourg <laughs> tomorrow. I could hang out in Paris next week. I do this on a regular basis. I'm going to go to boring Maryland. I'm from New Jersey. Maryland's even more boring than New Jersey is. I go, no. <laughs> So he, they literally had to tell him to turn them down. I'm like, yeah, I'm turning them down. I'm not with that nonsense. Because I already heard everybody's horror stories. I'm like, no, nah, forget that. Oh, that's too bad. You might have had more fun than you think. There's, there's, <laughs> nothing, there's nothing more fun than having a uniform and having a gun, having some rank after the four years of, of, of hardship to finally get to, to actually do things now. And to me, it was all going to go down the drain so that I could be in some – some corner office with no windows and, you know, I'm eating a chicken sandwich and it's just ridiculous with, with a shirt and a tie on. It's like, I, 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 I didn't join for that. <laughs> well, nowadays they keep their uniforms. Yeah, that's, that's what I hear. But I know back then they literally, you, you would not wear, able to wear it and they read your mail all the time. I'm like, great, great. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want that nonsense. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad I took, I took that away from that sort of stuff. But, and I'm not against what they do. It's important in what they do. It's just it wasn't ever going to be for me. If I thought the stupid spy planes were boring, I knew that was even going to be more boring. At least with the spy planes, I got to keep my uniform, and we still tried to do some interesting things. But <laughs> I, I, would, I knew I knew after about three months of that, that was it. I'm like, can we get out of here? Yeah. 
Because I'm, I'm up in Northern California. It's just like, it's like being in Saudi Arabia, you know? It's like, oh, my yeah, God. And I, okay. And it's like, it's <laughs> so, like a desert up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, to each his own, I guess. It's uh, uh, I was in the research division, and so they have the biggest toys at NSA. It was, uh, I was probably the dumbest guy in the research division. And it's just exciting, cutting edge, useful stuff. Oh, oh no, it, it definitely makes sense to me from, from, that's from your background. That's yeah, different. that's really different. And I, I can see why you'd be attracted to that. And others will too. You know, but I often told my friends in the Air Force, I said, listen, if you're like me, where you like to, you like to talk with people, you like to personalize, you like to be able to use that and, in, in, you know, engage with your assignment. Uh, you're not going to be able to do that over that kind of place. That's a place where people are not talking. <laughs> They're listening <laughs> to all the people yeah. around the world. So it, 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 it's contrary <laughs> to who I am. So I'm like, that's just not going to work for me. <laughs> Good point. Good point. It's like it's like the anti-Italian agency, it seems like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, God, well, we, God bless them. And I, I, I appreciate what you did. I'm going to be happy to read your book. Well, thank you. If we, if a couple people do that, every now and then we get a royalty check that's enough to buy a pizza. There you go. Well, <laughs> it's always a surprise, and it's always a, a way for my wife to say, "Okay, let's use that and get a pizza." <laughs> oh man. <laughs> well, you know, important for you and uh, getting it out there that kind of a memoir, and I do know, and you can also <laughs> tell too, because you can count it on Amazon. Um, there simply isn't a lot of books about that particular place. I mean, other than that, and I think the National Geospatial Agency or something, I think I don't even think there's actually one book on that. So literally between that and the NSA, you could probably count like five books. And these are agencies that have been around 40, 50 years. <laughs> so it's kind of unusual how few people have written about them. Yeah, most of them are about the CIA. Right, it's exactly. It's more glamorous. And, um, you know, it, it reads more like a thriller conventional thriller so that's where most of them are and that's where most of the trouble's been right right, uh, right. most most of the supreme court issues that are coming up are from the cia one is from the dia defense intelligence agency but most most writers have other things to worry about rather than leaning against the full weight of the department of defense so that's an interesting feeling <laughs> i can i can imagine and i definitely hope that um the Supreme Court can look at this and maybe find some some decent compromise to what their concerns are because they have, I feel, righteous concerns. I just think that the way they uh, the way they deploy them are, are, are simply extreme. You know, it, it's just yeah. like they they're trying to kill the fly with you know with an elephant gun. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, so yeah, it's that's misguided. that's the problem. Yeah, it's just it's just over overreaching and, and I don't know if they just do that because they're too lazy intellectually to pick apart what could be useful and what's not. They just ban it all. It's easier that way. So to me, it always seems to be more about bureaucratic cowardness than, than national security. Well, you know, in a, in a writing group, I'm finding a different version of pressure, counter pressure to writing. It seems to be breaking along generational lines. We have some newer people in our group, and they have different ideas about what's okay and not okay to write about and the way you write about and so I don't know if you've noticed this and what comes into you. You may not know the demographics of the people submit, but in our writing group, it, it's invigorating to have a whole bunch of 
younger people join the group. That, that's just amazing. And they, of course, they write about different things. But we've had a few little arm wrestling uh, matches there, for instance, about whether it's legitimate to write about Ukraine and the war there if you're not Ukrainian, which to the olders of us thought that's crazy. I mean, my grandfather came from the Ukraine, so maybe I get a pass. Okay. But uh, the idea that y you can't write about what you want to write about is a, is a dangerous thing that I'm sensing some of the young writers sort of believe in, that there's okay topics and not okay topics. And I don't think we want to censor ourselves systematically like that. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I don't I don't accept it, and, and I won't allow it to come over to what we do because I'm not into this whole hyper-partisan thing. But to speak to that particular issue, uh, I can say this. I think the person is wrong, and the mainly reason I think they're wrong is because I happen to be a citizen of this country, regardless if I'm a veteran or not, that has given Ukraine literally billions of my dollars. So if mm. I'm giving you billions of dollars... <laughs> I should have some reasonable right to be able to have a commentary on it, whether I'm liking it yeah. or not. And to say yeah. that I can't have a comment on it, but you can keep taking my money, that's just not going to work. Yeah. The other example that comes to mind was a little less fraught. Um, I wrote something, uh, it is sort of an old guy, young guy kind of a dialogue. And I think in my dialogue, I called, the young guy was called a youth. And... Uh, the, my critic in the writing group said, you know, in the margin, she wrote, you know, you should be aware that young people don't like to be called youths. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just sort of laughed. <laughs> but then I thought, well, wait a minute, don't box me in. I'll, I'll call them youths if I want to. But maybe that's part of the grumpy old man persona that I'm working on. I don't. I, I think to me, I, I think it's it, it's a false way to cover people because they don't want to be intellectually invigorating by calling everybody they don't agree with a, a a grumpy old man or racist or a sexist or some of these titles here. I, I think they don't really even apply anymore, and it's it's dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous to overuse them. Because when there's a real example of racism, we won't know it anymore because we've heard the word so many times that we don't even take it seriously, like crying wolf too many times, you know? Yeah. Well, the, 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 the first of my stories that you just published is about a grumpy old man, and it, it celebrates his grumposity, I think. It's supposed to be a little bit funny. I think we can make fun of that and enjoy it. We can, but I, I don't always feel if a person is... Not happy the way some new thing is going about that that makes them uh, grumpy. Maybe it just means that oh. whatever is happening doesn't really coincide with their values. And, and as yeah. long as they express themselves respectfully and just don't be a nasty person about it, I don't think anything's wrong with that. But we sure. we have too many too many times in society where they spend too much time shouting down something just because it's in a disagreement, not because the person was disagreeable, just because they disagree. And that, to mm -hmm. me, is a real abridgment of, of, of free speech. That's dangerous. Very. Especially in the society that we're in. That we're in. So definitely don't, uh, definitely don't like that at all. I'm really, I'm really happy we got a chance to, to, to meet and, and, and talk like this, to kind of have a, a better understanding of who you are as a writer, what you're trying to do. Uh, definitely thank you for your, your service out there with the, with the NSA. Uh, 
one of the few people I've met that actually were there, other than some of my old Air Force friends I'm still in contact with, and, you know, they, they don't even tell me half the stuff that went over. I'm like, good, don't, because I told you not to go, and you didn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> I, was still, I was still in Germany with the good beer and the good food, and you go over there in Maryland eating a tuna fish sandwich, and you wonder why you're unhappy. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> it's another reason why I didn't want to go. The food in Europe is much better. <laughs> Well, you know, upstate New York is is not as exciting as Maryland. <laughs> no, but the food is better in upstate New York than it is Maryland, too, because my wife's from there. She's from Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I fattened up in Annapolis a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's an important place, and they do important work. Don't don't get me wrong. It just yeah. wasn't, wasn't, my, wasn't my kind of thing, that's for sure. Well, I'm definitely uh, excited to have you on board to Aerial Chart over here, and we're really happy that we're able to pick up those pieces. I'm always in the, um, I don't know if you want to call it hunt, but I'm always in the market <laughs> for more short fiction because it, it's harder to come by these days. Uh, I, I don't know why, because in many instances, most magazines that accept short, you know, short fiction, uh, they don't publish a lot of it. They usually publish more poetry, so... You'd think mm. there would be more out there. So every so often, if somebody sends me two pieces of short fiction and they feel, you know, they're both solid, I'm going to accept them because, you know, it's they're not so easy to come by. I mean, I have had um, issues where we, we've had maybe like two, like in the whole month, because that's all oh, wow. that's all out of a couple that got sent that I can even accept because it was just wasn't anything of, you know, interest and quality or, you know, and pff, I know people mean well, but. And I don't want to put it in the guidelines, but, you know, it's a private thing. But, you know, how many pandemic COVID-19 stories can I take? I mean, really? I mean, how, how, do, <laughs> yeah. how many do you expect me to publish that uh, saying anything new? You know, there, there aren't any. I, I've, I literally got like five or six one time from literally each different writer. And I swear to God, they all sound like they were in a conference, like sharing notes or something. I'm like, what is this? This, this person lives <laughs> yeah. 2,000 miles away from the other person. How do they sound the same? So I had to literally stop publishing that stuff because it's like that's that's you're not adding anything interesting to it. I'm not saying be in denial. I'm not saying don't write about it. I'm saying that like anything else, if you can't make something relevant or interesting out of it, you know, other than telling me, you know, you got laid off or, you know, your uncle got sick or, you know, these vaccinations don't work. You know, we all already had that experience. You're not adding anything new to the table. Don't write about it then if you can't write anything new about it. Mm. So I get something like from you that doesn't have anything about COVID in it. I'm like, thank God. Well, I'm good at denial. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't encourage that. I just tell people, you know, yeah. this, it, it should set you apart. It should be something interesting and, and, and relevant. And, and if you are writing about something that we've all experienced, I mean, you would think that you would know, you know, not to uh, not to make us fall asleep. That's one like the main rule of writing. Don't make them fall asleep. Yeah. Do you remember, I think, a very un, unappreciated muse for writers, Ricky Nelson. You're old enough to remember Ricky Nelson. <laughs> yeah. And his, his song, Garden Party. Yeah. Yes. Where uh, he went to, um, I guess, Madison Square Garden. He sang his old songs and everybody booed him. And there was a line in his song about that says, you can't please everyone, so you might as well please yourself. And I think that that's a good guidance for a writer, even if it doesn't get uh, published. There's something in you that that wants to say something, if only to yourself out loud, so you can think about it. 
And so I think, you know, we look to our own, um, the own inner voice. And sometimes if you're lucky, it connects and, and somebody else gets to hear it too, if they want to. And that's, that's what you do. You turn, turn some of those inner voices into something that'll touch another person. So don't quit. Yeah, I definitely agree. Do not quit. And uh, that really is the, the, I think the, the focal point uh, of all writing is you're trying to speak to yourself honestly. And I, I tell writers all the time that's what you should do. But I also make the joke that on the rewrite, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the time for you to try to find something relevant that might reach into the other person's heart as well. Because I agree with you, but yes. only to a certain point. Because, God forbid, you write 15 pieces that you're really happy with, but no one knows what the hell you're talking about. That's not really helpful yeah. either. So sometimes in the rewrite, you might be able to find the bridge of what made you happy and also what the other person might be able to, to grapple onto or maybe relate to. If you can get something in that piece that's relatable, that's the anchor that's probably going to get you published. Sure. But I, I agree. But it, where does it start? It starts in, in a way with a private conversation with yourself. It does, and it should. At least in my case. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I think it should because I think the best writing or the most interesting writing comes from that. I know a lot of other people that do interesting writing, especially in the fantasy and science fiction realm, where you could tell, and it doesn't mean it's bad writing, but you could tell that they have to fit a certain script because the characters can only do certain things and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? You're, mm -hmm. you're not going to have a Klingon from Star, Star Trek be a, you know, a, an incredible French chef. It's not really going to work in that script, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So I, I understand that. But it also means that, you know, you, you've, you've built restrictions now that you're going to have to live with. Where um, mm. if, if you do things, I, I, I feel, um, that are more universal, but you're still talking to yourself and still honoring what you what you, what you feel, you, you, you have a better chance of getting something that's going to be more relatable and, and definitely more publishable. Not everything yeah. you do is going to do that. But there are there are pieces that that should do that at least. Well, if I could get that to two percent, I'll consider it a victory. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing good, and there's nothing wrong with what you're sending out there. And you know, it, it's my advice for you, Tom, as much as any one of the writers that that do this. And and the funny thing is, we've been fortunate with the podcast that we have listeners from around the world. I got like 36 countries last time I checked. And when they email me about the shows or it just sometimes in private, they don't really sound any different than any other writer from America. So you, you find that some of the mm -hmm. things they're going through are really not any different. You know, I talked to a writer from Egypt the other day. He always cracks me up. He goes, I don't know what's wrong with you Americans, but guess what? Just because I live in Egypt doesn't mean I'm going to write about the damn pyramids all day. I got women that, I got women that are breaking my heart. I got a taxi driver that doesn't really take a shower. I got a wife who's breaking my, you know, my private parts over here. You know, we have real lives here just like everybody else. And why can't I write about that? I'm like, of course you should write about that. I don't really care about the pyramids. It's kind of like getting old anyway. I got you. But you'll find that no matter where they come from, you know, they have some of the same issues, some of the same rejection problems yeah. or some of the same problems with writing itself and, and trying to get their voice out there. Yeah. So it's great that they're able to listen to the show. Uh, many of them, English is the second or third language. In fact, I got one guy, English is his fourth language, and he still listens. Awesome. He still listens. And, yeah. and, you know, sometimes he'll ask me to clarify a couple of things now and then. I got messengers, so on the international level, it works out really good to shoot messages back and forth. But mm. You'll find that if you if if you were in some kind of like 
like Zoom meeting or something like that where you had like 10 or 20 of these people from around the world, you, you'd be thinking mm-hmm. they all came from Kansas because they all seem to have the same kind of writing problems. So it really doesn't yeah. matter where you come from, what culture you are. I mean, unless you're from a really, really, you know, police state place like Iran, where I've literally had somebody tell me, listen, I, I, only certain things I could write about because I still live here and I don't really want to get shot or thrown in jail. Yeah. Everybody else, is, yeah. they, they pretty much have the same kind of, you know, problems. They don't have that problem, but, you know, they, they pretty much do. Yeah. I, so I, I find how, how universal writers are, and, and because of our own um, – uh, practices and our own uh, behavior and maybe even our own failures and possibly of our own pains they they tend to be pretty similar whether you're from chile or chicago it's just amazing yep and that's that's why i find being in a couple of writing groups so important because we do support each other we celebrate when somebody has a victory and and we've learned to be gentle critics of each other but honest and so I, I kind of live for those meetings every week. It's and and the people. Well, I, and, and I, we're going to have. And that's great. <laughs> I, I actually did a show on, on that on that subject, where we uh, mm. we talked to some people about how they felt about <laughs> writing groups, and you know we wound up having a mixed show of you know some some real value to it, and other times people felt that you know it was uh, it was not for them, or, or maybe they didn't feel they were being heard. Or maybe even if they felt it was a little abusive. So it really depends on, well, on the group as well. It sounds to me like you, you got connected to some really good, healthy ones. Yes, and, and it's, it's a good group. One, one of our women who is a very accomplished poet is, is having a 100th rejection party. <laughs> Whenever she accumulates 100 rejections, she throws a party for us. So we're kind of, it's a mixed message, you know, go, Jenny, go, but... You know, are you up to 95 yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's definitely nothing wrong about that. Um, I, I know the guy, and I did it privately myself for a long time, where if I thought I got something real elaborate as a rejection, I, I would just save it can, and make fun of it because it was just <laughs> ridiculous. Sometimes you get rejections that are not form letters. They're literally a person saying something that, that doesn't make any sense. I'm okay getting mm-hmm. rejected if you make some sense. Tell me something you think that, you know, I could have fixed or maybe I wasn't going in the right direction. But, you know, if it's just completely idiotic. I had literally someone told me yeah. one time that um, I was I was being a misogynist because I wrote a, a fiction piece about a guy that had such a, a bad day that the only part of his day that was even worthwhile is when he went to the diner to have dinner and he was looking at the waitress's butt. That was it. That was the whole <laughs> point of the story was to have a – just a, a funny moment of that, and, and the person thought that was a misogyny. It wasn't even a woman that said that. It was a guy, you know? And I took I took real laughter in it because later on when it got published by a woman, I shared that with her, and she just laughed. <laughs> she goes, what? She goes, you didn't say anything perverted or dirty or anything. It was kind of quite natural. I go, that was the whole point, to make it natural, that the day was so damn bad that this girl's butt was probably the only thing that had any kind of motivation for this guy to even lift his head up. I mean, you know, even even the meatloaf he was eating wasn't exciting, you know. So, <laughs> I just want just want to have a piece like that where you know you just show how how bad a day can be without you know totally yeah. depressing somebody and I literally get a, a rejection that way saying I'm being a total misogynist. I'm like, what in the hell? You don't even know what the word means if you're saying that nonsense. Well, the editor was probably about 22. I, I don't, you don't never know the age. I know it was a guy though, and yeah. I, I I literally emailed him back. I go, you you need to relook at that because I know what misogyny means, and it doesn't mean anything in this story because I don't write stuff like that. I don't even believe in that kind of uh, that kind of thinking. 
But I also don't believe that I can't make a comment without someone making some kind of a judgment uh, or, or some kind of label. That's that's going to be dumb. I'm not I'm not going to do yeah. that. You know, not at all. Yeah. As long as it, as long as it's tasteful and within context, you know, I think it's perfectly good fine. And that's usually what I tell people when they when they write stuff to me. I, I say if you want to be controversial, be controversial. But you know, make sure it make sure it makes some sense. Make sure it's it's tasteful, nothing graphic, and, and make sure it's still artistic. You still have to be your artist before, you know, you're a social worker or, or a commentator or, mm-hmm. or a politician because that's our first job. Everything else has to be second. Otherwise, you, you're not being a writer. You're just being a guy in a soapbox. We got a lot of those. Yeah. And if your name is on it, it better be authentic or you should find another avocation. Yeah, as much as you can you can believe in that, yeah, I, I, I agree. But you would not believe how many people I got to turn, <laughs> turn away because – what they're writing doesn't ring to be true. You could just tell mm-hmm. that, it, that it has a, a certain falseness to it. Now, when you write fiction, even though it's fiction, it's supposed to still ring true. That's the whole point of writing, where it's fiction, but it rings true, that somebody can catch something from that, somebody can agree with something, somebody can relate to something, where they know it's still fiction, but they they feel you know the visceralness of it. They feel that it has a, a, yeah. a measure of integrity. But if you write something where it doesn't even ring true, then not only am I not going to publish it, but I'm going to say like, dude, this just it doesn't even ring true. I mean, you can't you can't write something like this and and, and not mean it, because what would be the point then? It's just a collection of words from suburbia. Writing has to be more than that. Well, in one of my other lives, the word for that is commercial speech. <laughs> Well, I wish it was commercial because at least I could have said something positive. It wasn't even that. It was just it just it just sounded fake, you know. It just sounded like, you know, you you got a guy in the post office and he he wanted to be Rambo, but he didn't even know how to handle a gun or or, or, or what the gun was called. You know, it's just sort of like that. It just sounded so inauthentic that it's like, oh my god, I can't take this yeah. anymore. It's like learn yeah. learn to fight or learn to use a knife or learn to use a gun maybe before you write about it. If you have to do that, yeah. or I'll just do the research because I find that lots of people that write things that they don't really have any connection with, they were able to get through and pass it along because they did research. And if you're willing to do the work for that, you're going to sound authentic. But you know, if you're not even doing that, then it's just an exercise in laziness, which writing should never ever be. Amen. All right, Tom, I want to thank you very much again for coming on. And hopefully uh, in, the, in the near future, we can have you on again if, if you're willing to come on and maybe you got some new things that are going on, a new book or something like that. It'll be great. I don't believe, as long as you're okay with it, that um, you're not going to get interviewed by other people in, in the near future. It, it, it just makes sense to, uh, to talk to, to different writers that come from different backgrounds because they add something to it that other people uh, are not able to do. You know, who 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 would know that uh, a professor who is also uh, a company owner and also somebody that worked in, in an intelligence agency, you know, can write can write fiction. And then you, when you read the fiction, it doesn't even relate to a lot of that stuff that, that he's done in, in the past. It still still has its own uh, individuality and in, in its own uniqueness. So that's why other people from different fields should come to writing, because it adds something more to writing that we didn't have before. And that's what you do, Tom. You add more to what we didn't have before. So I am very glad you're with us. Well, you're very kind to say that, and I've, I've really gotten a kick out of the time we spent together. 
Well, I did too, and I'm sure it's going to do uh, great. I had a guy uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I was a little like, I literally had to kind of like do a pre-interview with him. He's a lovely fellow, but I'm like, you know, I know the show is okay with, with sexual content and some of the stuff you're doing in the erotic arena, but we still can't get graphic on the show because even though the podcast may be okay with it, I'm not exactly excited about it. So if there's any way you can have this interview with me where you're not like, you know, throwing breast parts all over the place and something, I'd be, I'd appreciate that. You know, because we still have female uh, audience, and I, I don't want to freak them out. And, and he was able to, to do a great interview where he was able to really talk about why he was doing this, what he was trying to achieve. And it was it was excellent. It was literary. It was social. It, it had it had a sexual uh, erotic appeal to it that was tasteful, because I don't normally do that subject very much. And and it worked out great. And, and it wound up being one of the more popular podcast episodes, and it still still gets a lot of people listening to it. So... You'll never know what you're going to expect from folks, but I try not to cut myself <laughs> off. But, you know, you know, I had another guy, he, he, he wants to do an interview about a story he wrote uh, where he made uh, Batman gay. And I'm like, listen, I'm not against that, but and, and I'm not trying to make a joke here, but I always felt that a grown man wearing leather with a teenage boy in a cave, I always felt he was gay anyway. So maybe this kind of makes sense because <laughs> I always thought the guy was gay. You know, so he says he wants to do a gay Batman book. <laughs> so I, I, I might want eventually do an interview with him if I can get my head around how, how he's going to go about this. But I try to be as open as I can, as long as it's not too crazy. And uh, believe it or not, a gay Batman these days, it, it's probably not all that risk-taking anymore. <laughs> well, I, I think I just read that there's going to be a gay Spider-Man movie coming out. So the guy may have missed his window. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that is possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think once they make the the Incredible Hulk to be gay, we're all in trouble. I might have to run. <laughs> well, your problem, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny, but yeah, I, I try to be open, and and it definitely does show uh, on how um, when you are and you come across people that you know that is sincere and, and talented and, and well-meaning, we can get some interesting points of view out. We don't have to all agree. I mean, I'm not into that guy's writing and all the stuff he does. And I told him, I mean, I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to read some of it. And I do. And I'm okay with that. But, uh, you know, he has a particular audience, and that's great. And, and that's what he should be doing. So I'm trying to keep open to as much as I can keep open to. You know, the only thing I, I'm really restricted on is, is the language. You know, I've had some people I'd love to have on, but, you know, without them having an interpreter, it's just never going to happen, you know, and... Yeah. I'm hoping one day I'll, I'll be able to get somebody that can do that because I'd be happy to do that, you know. But you know the chances of me learning French or Farsi tomorrow is just you know very very slim, you know. Yeah. But I, I, I'm expecting one day I'm going to be able to do that because I already shown that you can have two people in um in one room together and they can share the uh, the headphone and the microphone and still uh, do an interview where everybody can hear it and comprehend. So it, there's definitely technically a, a possibility to do a, a translator with it. You know, it'll make it for a longer show, but it, it would be interesting. So I'm hoping to have that one day because that's something I'm really looking forward to. I want to hear from some other people that don't necessarily speak English uh, to hear what they have to say about things about the world. I'm pretty sure that it's not going to be that radical what they have to say, but I still like to hear it and, you know, and, and get it translated yep. in English. So I can't wait. <laughs> yep. All right, Tom, you take care and thank you very much. Uh, I hope you have a, a wonderful rest of the weekend. Uh, it's been real, real privilege and, and blessing to have you on. I know a lot of people are going to talk about this show. I actually get people that email me about the shows, and I wind up doing this if you check out my catalog. 
uh, like every couple of months I'll do a show just about all the emails about the other shows. And people have interesting, interesting. things to yeah. say. Good, bad, or indifferent. I try to bring it all on board as long as they're not crazy or profane. So I put negative stuff in there too that people say because we should hear that as well. And, um, and, and I'm sure that they're going to say something about this one, just like the other one. I already know the other one because I got like 10 emails already from, from this guy on, on that sex show. So um, my, my next show on this is probably going to be half sex and then all the other ones probably. But that's great. <laughs> At least I know people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. You take care. Okay. All right, folks. This is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human. That was uh, Thomas uh, Wildman. Um, a wonderful fiction writer, uh, author of a, a wonderful uh, memoir. I can't wait to read it myself, but uh, I definitely believe it's going to be uh, impactful. If you do check it out, you can buy it on Amazon. It's called Working on the Dark Side of the Moon, Life Inside the National Security Agency. So you can't get any more plain than what that's going to be about. And check it out, okay? You'll, you'll learn something new because for every um, – uh, NSA book that's out there, there's 57,000 for the CIA. So it's time to balance things, okay? <laughs> All right, folks. God bless Great. and take care. Thank you very much for joining us here at Strength to be Human. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.